Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, you can be turning to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and we will meet there in just a moment. I feel like I need to say before we get started with any other pleasantries this morning uh, that no, I am not wearing a coat. Uh, and it is simply hanging on the chair at home where I left it when I walked out of the house this morning. I'm not trying to start some new fad or trend here to say that I'm not going to wear a coat anymore. I will also let you know that uh, Campbell also offered to lend me his if I wanted to try to wear it, Uh, but I'm not giving you all that joy of watching me try to put this on or preach in in that, so I'll just sit it down here. But uh, he did offer me his coat, but I don't think that's going to work either. So uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. We truly are thankful to see so many of you Uh, from the least or maybe the youngest uh, to the greatest or the oldest. We're thankful for all who are here this morning that we can study together for just a few moments. Uh, Let me just go along with what Gary has already said about our last leaders program. Uh, We had a great time in Nashville and we want to share what happened there uh, during the weekend with you. Of course, most of you know that our young people uh, competed in a Bible Bowl competition over the book of Joshua. Many of them presented speeches and song leading. Uh, Several of them did uh, art that went along with that, and and we just had a really good time. Uh, We did have some success. We did win a few awards, although it's not about that. But we're proud of our young people when they do uh, put forth the effort to practice those things and then compete and and have some success in that. And so we want to share that with you. The biggest thing that most of us who went would say is we want to say thank you to Gary and Sandra because they were in charge of the food. And if there's one thing that's important to about 20 of of us or so being there, it's making sure we all have food and can eat along the way over the weekend. And they took care of a sort of a hospitality room where we had meals while we were there and they took care of all that, had it ready for us as we were running around to different events and things that were going on. And so uh, we're just really thankful for them and uh, them going along with that. And, and again, I'll echo what Gary said. If you've not ever been, you don't have to stay the night. You're welcome to come and stay the night with us there at the Opryland Hotel. Uh, But you don't have to do that. You're welcome to come up on Friday or especially on Saturday when a lot of the events are going on. Uh, in particular, for the first time for me, I guess since we've been going uh, for several years now, I got to go Saturday uh, evening to watch uh, the young men lead singing. And by young men, I mean young men who were pre-K through about second grade. And Campbell was one of those, and uh, there were a lot of others. And if you've never watched a, a, a five- or six-year-old try to lead singing, they're doing their best, but it's just a little humorous to watch them sometimes. We had one yesterday that stood there with his paper in front of his thing the whole time. So, And Hannah and I got a little tickled, but it, it was good. I mean, we're just, it's just so proud of all that they're doing there, as Gary said. The future of the church, the, the current state of the church is encouraging. If I'm not mistaken... I think there used to be upwards of about 10,000 there at Nashville together, families and Christians and young people uh, basically renting out the whole Opryland Hotel full of Christians. It's great to go and be a part of that. There are also conventions uh, in Atlanta and Little Rock and Louisville and even around the world. They have one uh, in India that's been going on now for a couple of years. And so we're just thankful for the good work and all those who are a part of that. Let me just say again, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Thank, thankful to looking, uh, looking forward to studying together here. If you can stay and be with us for lunch, do that. If you can stay and be with us at 1.30, we hope that you will do that as well. In John chapter 1 and verse number 1, the gospel according to John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John speaking about Jesus, he comes down even further there in chapter 1, and in verse number 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
There may be no greater emphasis upon what is said there in verse number 14 in particular than John chapter 11 that we're going to look at this morning. You know, this is a day commonly when most places around the world even are going to talk about resurrection. And while we know that we have no scriptural authority to celebrate Easter as a religious holiday per se. We're not going to go into detail about that this morning. If you have any questions, we hope that you would ask us. But the Bible doesn't say that's something that we should do on a particular Sunday in the spring or or anything like that. We're thankful when people think about the resurrection. And this morning, we want to focus on resurrection. Although maybe a little differently than most people will think today, We want to think about a resurrection, but not necessarily the resurrection of Jesus, although that's ever present in our mind as we assemble here each first day of the week, and even as we think about the occasion that we're going to talk about this morning. But in John chapter 11, we find a story of resurrection. And no, it's not Jesus's because he's not even been to the cross yet. But we want to think about the resurrection that takes place here. I'd like to share with you a few C words as we begin. I heard a a great lesson by our brother Wade Webster, who's just a wonderful gospel preacher, and he had about 11 points to share this story. I don't want to go through all of those, but just a few to maybe help you think about what takes place here in John chapter 11. The first one is the fact that there is a crisis. If you're open there, you notice the first five verses that we think about this man named Lazarus, and the crisis is that he is sick. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's mentioned about six times in the first few verses that Lazarus is sick. This is a crisis because there are family members who care about Lazarus who are concerned for his health. Namely, that we read here in verse number one, Mary and her sister Martha. They're concerned just like you would be. Just like many of you are even today about loved ones who are sick. You're concerned. And so we read about this crisis of Lazarus being very sick. Mary and Martha are so concerned that they're going to send for, or at least send word to Jesus, their friend, Jesus. But even though they send word to him, we see, secondly, that there is a continuation. And that continuation takes place in about verses 6 through 7, where we see that even when Jesus receives this word, that his friend, if you open to chapter 11, you see in verse 3, whom he loved... His friend is sick, but Jesus is not going to run because that's what we would do, right? Right? Parents, I don't have to ask you. You know if your child is sick, whether you're at work or if you're in another room or they're outside, if something happens, you come running. I don't have to tell you parents who maybe are middle-aged, we might say, and your parents are a little bit older. When they call and something has happened, you come running because that's what we do when we show care when someone is sick. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus continues here. He stays where he is, verses 6 and 7 tell us, for two more days. We say sometimes Jesus was a little backwards. That's not to be irreverent in any way, but much of his teaching was kind of the opposite, right? He would say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And here he doesn't come running, but he continues where he is. Verses 8 through 15 tell us that that's really a bit of concern from the disciples. Because we see, if you're, if you're open there, you notice in chapter 10 and verse number 39, before we get to Lazarus and Mary and Martha, chapter 10, verse 39, that they sought again to seize him. You see, Jesus is where he is. The apostles are where they are with him because they're concerned for his health. 
They're afraid that they, there are people, they know there are people who want to kill him. And so they show concern for him. They stay, and he ends up staying where he is. In fact, we notice in verse 16 that even after Jesus has some interaction with the apostles and he makes a few statements to them, he talks about Lazarus sleeping, and they think, well, why would Lazarus be sleeping? That doesn't make sense. Jesus says, no, at one point he says, he is dead. So Thomas makes the statement in verse number 16, well, then let us go die too. And so there is a commitment here. We come to verses 17 through 19, and we notice that there is comfort. Once again, something that this congregation excels at. That when something is wrong, much less that someone has died, and there is sorrow in losing a loved one, we come together with each other. We come together to comfort one another. And so as Jesus is going to arrive on the scene, there is the comfort of friends and family who are with Mary and Martha. But as Jesus arrives, it leads us to notice, in the third place, Martha's conviction. Because Martha makes a statement here, and we're going to come back to it in just a second. So I'd ask you just to kind of make a mental marker there, and we'll come back to talk about this in more detail. But she talks to Jesus and makes a convicted claim that if he had simply been there, maybe something might have been different. And as she says that, and Jesus is interacting with her, we get to verses 25 through 32, and Jesus makes this great claim. It's the great claim that is a part of our title. If you have a bulletin in front of you, you notice the title of the lesson. Jesus makes this great claim. There are several I am statements in the book of John. And here is one of those. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He makes this great claim, which then leads him, as we would notice in our outline, to show some compassion Right? Most people are familiar with John chapter 11 in one way because it's the story of Lazarus, right? And Lazarus rising from the dead. But maybe you're familiar with John chapter 11 because you know verse 35, right? I don't even know. I've not paid attention lately, but is it still spray painted down here uh, on the underpass? But it was for many days, right? John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept. Our Savior, the Son of God, who has come in the form of flesh, shows compassion as he cries tears we'll come back to that again in just a second as well but he doesn't allow that compassion to stop him to freeze him to make him not do anything but it leads him to make this great call now it's, it's not a call that we think about a decision you know you say well the, the boss is going to make a call well he's, he's going to make a decision Jesus doesn't make a decision but he makes this great statement Lazarus come forth in verse number 43 the call of Christ comes about here as he calls Lazarus forth from the dead. Many of you are familiar of the great gospel preacher, and you've probably heard this story before, our brother Marshall Keeble, who used to say in some of his gospel meeting sermons that Jesus had to call Lazarus by name because with the power of Jesus' voice, if he had simply said, come forth, the whole grave would have come out, right? Everyone would have come at the sound of his voice. But he calls Lazarus by name, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, even after this great thing happens, chapter 11 is not just famous for Jesus wept or the story of Lazarus, but as you look down through verses 45 through 57, we notice also that there was a conversion or conversions, we might say. Verse 45 tells us that there were many who had seen the things Jesus did and they believed. They believed in him. But as we're going to notice again as we get through the rest of our lesson, there are some who even don't believe. 
who still struggle with believing in Jesus even after what they have seen and heard. And so that's a real quick overview of what takes place in chapter 11. But there are a few other things we want to notice. If you have your outline in front of you, I titled three or four of these things as nuggets, if you will, because I think it's just interesting. We could have touched on them in the outline, but I wanted to come back because now we have the large picture. Let's focus in on just a few things before we begin to make some application for us. Number one, we notice Mary and Martha. I gave you Martha's name in your outline. We'll get there in a second. But Mary and Martha. And what do we notice about them? Well, first of all, we notice they're real. Uh, Some people would say that maybe these characters are made up. Maybe these things didn't really happen. But Mary and Martha are real. And we would also notice their personalities are real. How do we know Mary and Martha? Well, primarily from Luke chapter 10. If you know your Bible history, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, we read about Jesus coming to their home, Martha being very busy, Mary sitting at at his feet, and there's a little bit of strife between them, but we know about them. Where else do you know about Mary and Martha? Well, as John tells us there by inspiration in John chapter 11 and verse number 2, he says it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Well, if you're there in your Bible, you got to go forward because that's actually John chapter 12 where that takes place. With the anointing of Mary, of Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair there in chapter 12 and the first eight verses. We notice, first of all, that Mary and Martha are real and their personalities are real. They utter the same phrase that's found here. And Martha says it in verse number 21. It's when Jesus first shows up. And again, we see their personalities because Martha seems to be waiting, right? Martha was the one around the house getting busy. And it seems like that she is, she's waiting. She, she hears that he's coming. And so she wants to, to be looking for him. And as he comes on the scene, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it must have been something they shared together because you go forward to verse number 32, and as Jesus interacts with Mary, you see Mary say the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, question before we go any further. Could Jesus have done this from afar? Did he have to be within five to ten feet of the dead person in order for this to take place? Let me remind you of John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. John chapter 4, where there is a nobleman whose son is sick. He comes and he finds Jesus and begs for Jesus to do something. And Jesus simply says, go home, your son is well. As the nobleman travels home, their servants come and meet him and say, he's well. Jesus did it from afar. He didn't have to be within five feet or ten feet, so he could have done it from where he stood. But yet he didn't. But yet Mary and Martha both have this statement, if you had only been here. And I'll be honest with you, I I used to think of it, maybe as you have before, that we kind of feel like there's some anger there, right? There's some bitterness maybe. They're saying, Jesus, if you had only been here, why weren't you here? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But I would submit for your thinking that maybe it's not just anger, although maybe there's a bit of human emotion there, but there's belief. There's really belief here because what they are saying is we know that if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. We believe in what you can do. We wish you had been here, 
But we know that if you had been here, there'd been nothing to worry about. It's not just anger, but belief. And the reason we mention Martha here is because Martha sort of shines in a sense, right? We have a bit of a misunderstanding about Martha. We have a negative opinion because of what takes place in Luke chapter 10. And maybe, maybe that's a weakness. We could argue about that at a different time. But maybe there's something going on there. She's worried over the house instead of sitting at the feet of Jesus. But she shines here as she makes several statements of belief. Notice in verse 23, he says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know that. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's a believer. She believes in the resurrection. She says, Lord, I've got faith. I know that he will rise again. And that's not what Jesus is meaning. That leads him to say, I am the resurrection and the life. But Martha begins to shine here. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a second person that we have a misunderstanding about that shines here. And that's Thomas. Do you recall we brushed over it very quickly in chapter 11 and verse number 16 that Thomas makes this great statement. And here we see that doubting Thomas was devoted Thomas, right? I know a preacher, I think I've mentioned it before, that won't even sing the song that's called Thomas's song because they say, he says sometimes he feels that gives Thomas too bad of a rap. We simply hold him up as doubting Thomas. How could he do that? Doubting Thomas wasn't always doubting Thomas, if he really even was. He was also devoted Thomas. And here he shows courage. Maybe it's a little negative because he kind of says, well, Jesus, if we're going to go die, let's go die. We might as well all go die. It's a little negative, but at the same time, he shows courage. And let me challenge you. Do you remember in John chapter 14? You may only have to turn a page or two in your Bible. John chapter 14, the reason we know that Thomas was also devoted is verse number 5. It is Thomas in John 14 who says, Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? You remember Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place. Thomas says, how can we know? Why would he say that? Because he wanted to be with the Lord. Doubting Thomas was very often devoted Thomas. He says, Jesus, I want to be with you. He says it there in John chapter 11. He says it in John chapter 14, which leads Jesus to say those great words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Doubting Thomas, maybe, but also devoted Thomas, who makes a strong statement here about simply wanting to be with the Lord. But let's go a little further. We would also notice here that we see a true miracle. That's important because so many people do want to attack the Bible. They do want to say that maybe these things aren't true. You know, maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe they kind of pulled a trick. And in fact, I would even say that it seems like Jesus maybe could have done something if he were not who he said he was, if he were not the Son of God. He might could have said, well, you know what? Let's roll the stone away. But if you guys will wait out here for just a minute, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go inside and check real quick. You know, sometimes how we do that with our kids, maybe, well, I'm going to go inside and check, and I may need to change something. That's not what he does here. There's two ways that we know that. Number one, in verse number 39 of chapter 11, there is, and I'm sorry, we're just going to have to say it, the stench of a dead body, right? We don't want to think about it, but there's this nasty smell that goes along with a dead body. So much so that in verse 39, when Jesus says, roll the stone away, Martha tries to stop him. Why would she stop him? He's going to raise him from the dead. All she's thinking about is probably what I'd be thinking about, but the fact that when you roll that stone away, it's going to really smell inside that cave or inside that tomb. 
And so we know it's a true miracle. Jesus doesn't, again, run inside. He doesn't try to cover up anything. He simply stands back and makes the statements that he does. But not only that, we notice in verse number 44 that Jesus doesn't run up and try to help Lazarus or touch him or do something with him. It's the attendants. There are those who are helping who go and touch him. His body's not cold. His body's not stiff. He's there alive in the flesh, breath in his lungs, blood in his veins, alive once again. And Jesus doesn't have to be the one to try to fix it or make it look to be true. There are others who go to Lazarus and they see for themselves. They lay their hands on him and notice that, yes, this is a true miracle done by the Son of God. One more thing that I want to share with you before we make application, and that is this idea of one coming back from the dead. Do you remember in Luke chapter 16? In Luke chapter 16, we read the story of the rich man and Lazarus. That's not the same Lazarus we don't believe. That's not the same Lazarus there. But we read the story of the rich man and Lazarus. They both die, right? The rich man wakes up in torments, and he's, he's in punishment. He, he's in terror. He is in trouble, we might say, and there's nothing he can do about it at that point, right? Because his life here is over, but he makes two requests. Do you remember Luke chapter 16? The first is that he says that hopefully Lazarus would come back, or Lazarus would be able to take the tip of his finger, dip it in water, and touch just the tip of his tongue, right? To give him just a little bit of relief. That's one request. Of course, Father Abraham says that's not possible. But if you turned over to Luke chapter 16, you notice in verse number 27, the rich man then says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send Lazarus, you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, Father Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. What takes place in John chapter 11? Somebody comes back from the dead. And we've already touched on it, but go back there to John 11 or if you're still there. And you may notice that in verse number 45, there are people who believe because one came back from the dead. But we don't go much further to verse number 53, and there are others who do not believe. We're going to come back to this verse in just a second. But though one come back from the dead, we have touched on this even lately in our Bible classes and things, but how many people want to point out and they want to say, well, you know, if somebody would just come back from the dead, the whole world would believe. Father Abraham said that's not true. They've got the prophets. They've got the law. Let them, let your brothers hear those things. Today, we have gospel preachers. We have the word of God. And what happens? People still don't believe. One came back from the dead. It happened. Not in Luke 16, but here. And yet people still wouldn't believe. Kind of interesting to think about that when somebody brings that up, right? They say, well, what if? What if someone could just come back from the dead? Well, some people still won't believe. Let's make a few application points and the lesson will be yours. Number one, one of the things we learn from this lesson is how friends act. What friends do, we might say. 
If you're there in John chapter 11, you might notice in verse number 3 that Mary and Martha send for a friend. That's what we do as friends, right? We send for one another. We're there for one another. You better believe if you need something and I find out you didn't call me, I'm going to be upset. Because I want to help. And I think you want to help. Friends act because they send for friends. They ask for help when they're in need. We notice as well in verse number 7 that friends come. Not only do friends ask and ask for help, but then friends come. In verse number 7, Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. He's going to show up. There's the delay, and we know why, but yes, friends still come. Notice in verse number 19, we might say in the third place, that friends comfort. Mary and Martha have just lost their brother. Do you think they needed those around them, loving them, supporting them? Sure they did, and that's exactly where their friends are. Friends comfort one another in time of loss and of time of sorrow. And even in verse number 33, those same friends are weeping. It says, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, and the Jews who came with her weeping. I've got a book, I think, in my library, Walking with Those Who Weep, by our sister Pat Hall's, some of her relatives, Ron and Don Williams, who, by the way, I guess I could mention this here, I just found out the other day, are going to be coming uh, to the area soon to do a grief seminar. They do a good work with those things. Wrote a book, Walking with Those Who Weep. What do we do when we lose loved ones, when our friends, our family lose loved ones? We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But friends act. They're present. They comfort. They pray together. They encourage one another. And I think we see that in this story, not only from Mary and Martha and Jesus, but also those others who go unnamed who are around. We notice, secondly, who Jesus was. I know you know who Jesus was. I know there's so many ways that we could think about this. But, but think about the fact that Jesus was a friend. We sing those songs, don't we? Talk about Jesus being our friend or being a friend to Jesus. Let me ask you to go back to the beginning of John chapter 11 and think, how did they know he loved them? It says that they mentioned the fact that Jesus loved them, that Jesus loved Lazarus. Verse 5, he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Question, how did they know that? Do you think he said it? What would it feel like to hear, I love you, from the Son of God? I think he said it, but I also think he showed it. I think he spent his time showing it, not just here in John 11, not just in this moment of doing this great miracle, but I think he said it, and I think he showed it. Maybe we can learn a lesson about being a friend here by saying things sometimes. Both the difficult things, but also simply, I love you. We notice secondly about Jesus, of course, we learn about him that he was human yet divine. Or divine yet human, we might say. Five words, five words in John chapter 11 that show us both ends of the spectrum. First of all, as we think about him being human, Jesus wept. But then we come to the other end of the spectrum, Lazarus, come forth. You think about all those friends who are gathered there doing good work, weeping and caring for people. What if they had all said, Lazarus, come forth? What would happen? Well, absolutely nothing. Because they're not deity. They're human. They can weep, but they're not deity. Jesus is deity. He could have simply walked by or walked up or again, not even showed up and simply said, Lazarus, come forth. And it would have happened, but he didn't have to weep. But he was divine, yet human. Jesus wept to Lazarus come forth. 
And of course, we notice as well about Jesus here that these things were done so that you might believe. He mentions it several times. If you have a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red, you see in verse 26 that he talks about believing. You see in verse 40 that he talks about believing. These things are done that they might believe. Of course, that's what takes place in chapter 11 in verse number 45. People believe. You know, John says it again at the end of his account. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Have you ever considered, right? You considered that fact? How many things did Jesus do that we don't know about? We would say tons. I mean, thousands of things he did. But John says there, but these things are written that you might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did these things so that we could read about the fact that people would believe. In fact, his detractors knew it as well. In John 11 and verse 48, as they're talking about what to do, they say, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe. They want to kill him, and they recognize they've got to, because if they don't, everybody's going to believe in him because of the things that he is doing. That's what we learn about Jesus. Number three, we learn that Jesus' followers view death differently. Jesus' followers view death, death differently. We had a lesson probably a month or so ago about the fear of death, but it's just true. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 13, Paul would write to those and say, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Sometimes I like to do funerals. Sounds odd, but I really like to do funerals of those who are Christians. It's just different. Because Jesus' followers view death differently. There is a hole in the life of that family, and it hurts when we lose people. But for a Christian, we know they're in a better place. We know there's no more pain and suffering. There are times I really don't like doing funerals. There have been people who have called that I've never met. And they say, will you come do my relative's funeral? And I say, yeah, I don't, I don't mind to do that to say a few words. But either not knowing them or maybe even knowing them just a little bit and knowing they're not a Christian, it's not fun to consider. But those who follow Jesus, they view death differently. In fact, we notice here in John chapter 11 and verse 35, Jesus wept. This is not sorrow over loss. You see, you hear some people say that Jesus cried tears because he had lost a dear friend. But I have heard other preachers say, and I like to think of it this way as well, Jesus was not crying because he had lost a friend. It's possible that Jesus was crying because he knew that he had to take that friend and bring him back into a world of temptation. Not only that, but look over at chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. They're going to continue to try to kill Lazarus. He's bringing him back, and they're going to try to kill him again. Maybe Jesus is crying because he says, I'm taking somebody that is going to enjoy the peace and the comfort of going on to the next life, and I've got to bring him back to the temptation and the sorrow and the death. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the English Bible. But in the Greek original translation, the, the Greek language, the shortest verse in the Greek is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 16. And it's interesting because those once again present both ends of the spectrum. We see in John eleven thirty-five 35 in your English Bible, Jesus wept. 
You see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16 that we can rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. You see, we have hope. We don't have to cry because we lose loved ones, although we do because we feel pain. But when someone goes on to their reward, to peace, no more dying, no more tears, no more sorrow, we have hope. And we can rejoice evermore knowing that. Jesus' followers view death differently. It hurts. It hurts to lose loved ones. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you should just be happy and smile through all of it. We view death differently because we know what is coming when we think about an eternal reward. Fourth and finally this morning, we notice here that all is for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles there in John 11, you notice in verse number 4, the very first words that we get from Jesus in John chapter 11, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Sick, that's the message he gets, right? The messenger brings him the message. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. John paints this scene for us, a beautiful word picture of what takes place. Without knowing the end, without knowing what was coming, we certainly do because we can read it, but without knowing the end for them, Jesus let Lazarus die. But he didn't let Lazarus die because he did not love Lazarus. He didn't let Lazarus die because he did not love Mary and Martha. He let Lazarus die for the glory of God. Do you ever wonder why people suffer? Once again, it hurts. It hurts. It's not fun to face cancer diagnosis. It's not fun to lose loved ones why is it that people suffer why is it that kids get sick and die as hard as it is to swallow in some cases for us even suffering can be for the glory of God you remember Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 Jesus would say in that occasion on the sermon on the mount let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works the good things but I would also contrast it with John 11 and say that Jesus can see your suffering that others, excuse me, others can see your suffering. And all of those things can glorify the Father in heaven. All good things end with the glory of God. The church, our relationships, our love, our marriages, our life, all good things end not with me getting an award, not with me being glorified by others, but with the glory of God. All things we do should be done for the glory of God. One final note here, and if you're still there in John chapter 11, you can notice verse number 53. There's a resurrection in John chapter 11. It's not the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Lazarus. But there is also a great marker in the story of Jesus. When some people believe in verse 45, we notice in verse 46 that some people go away to the Pharisees and they sort of, you know, kind of tell on Jesus, right? They're going to rat him out to those authorities. And as those authorities are talking in verse number 53, there's some pretty powerful words. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Because of what he does for Lazarus, his fate is sealed here in this, on this earth. His, his death is sealed. And you begin to read there in chapter 12, specifically in verse number 12, what we commonly refer to as the triumphal entry and what many people have been celebrating over the last few days. The end of the life of Jesus here on this earth. His death is sealed. But perhaps the most powerful words of this whole passage was found in verse 25, the title of our lesson. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You know what that is? 
It's backwards, right? He, may, he dies, but he's going to live. That's exactly what it's like with Jesus. The tomb is empty. Lazarus is was, but we also would notice that Lazarus is, doesn't stay that way, right? Because it's going to be filled again as Lazarus did die and go back into a tomb, whether it was that one or not. But of course, we know as we are about to extend Jesus' invitation, his tomb is empty. Similar in a way because he resurrected as he resurrected Lazarus, but not the same because Jesus rose again. And as we think about the end of this lesson, as we think about resurrection, we extend heaven's invitation, Jesus' invitation to you this morning to come and take part of his burden because it's light. It's in his blood that we have the saving power, the gospel. You can have your sins washed away by coming in contact with the blood of Christ. God has given us a simple plan of salvation that we can obey. If you're here this morning and you've not done these things that are listed here, we would love to discuss it with you. It's the greatest decision that a person can make. You have heard the word already this morning. You can decide to believe it. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, you can repent of your sins. We usually say that that's a change of mind, but it's not just saying it in your mind. It leads to a change of life. You change your life, you repent of your sins, and then you're ready to confess you don't confess your sins here. You confess Jesus is Lord. The Ethiopian nobleman did that in Acts chapter 8. When he said, here is water, what doth hinder me from being baptized? Philip said, you can. If you believe, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He made that good confession. You can do that today before an audience such as this or even later today, but as soon as possible because it's that important. You're then ready to be baptized for the remission of your sins. You know that that means to come in contact with the blood of Christ as you're immersed in the water. You know that that means participating with Jesus in the gospel. You die to self. You're buried in a grave, although it's a watery grave, and you rise again just as he did. It's there then that your sins are washed away and you can be added to the church. Not by the elders here, not by the preacher here, but by the Lord to his church. And you can begin to live faithfully. See, we must remain faithful. It's important that you would be baptized for the remission of your sins, but that's not the last step. You've got to remain faithful. If you're here this morning and you're a child of God, maybe you've wandered away. Maybe there's sin in your life that separated you from God. No one has to walk out those doors with concern in their life, worrying what would happen if your life were to be required, if you died, if the Lord were to return. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to worry. You can be saved today from your sin, or you can come back to him. Knowing that if your life, your time was up here, that you would have, be able to enjoy that hope. You would be able to enjoy that reward because you have that hope. You can confess your sins. One of our elders will be coming forward here to the front in a moment. You can speak with them. They would love to pray with you and for you. We're thankful for a God that makes it possible that we can be saved. We're thankful for the resurrection of Lazarus. We're thankful for the resurrection of Jesus and the opportunity to have a home in heaven. We would love to assist you now, even now as we stand together and as we sing.